Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Prairie Unitarian Universalist Society. My name is Robin Proud. I've been a member of Prairie for over 20 years. I've been on various committees. Uh, right now, I'm on the program committee, and occasionally, I'm up here speaking. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Welcome to this morning, this day, and this opportunity to be together in community, which is a time of joy, comfort, and sometimes challenges. This Unitarian Universalist congregation is a place where we come to learn more about being human. We're not here because we've figured out life's questions or because we think we've got it right. We come here to learn more about being in relationship together, how to listen, how to forgive, how to be vulnerable, and how to create trust and compassion in one another. So for the beginning of my talk, I have a short reading about the picture that's on the order of service. The talk has something to do with Scheherazade. So I was looking up about her. I found this painting, and there were many things about it that seemed appropriate. It was painted by a woman born in France who then moved to England, I believe, but Sophie Jean Gebre Anderson, a British artist born in France. And this will refresh us on the story of Scheherazade. So much like the Brothers Grimm stories in Europe, 1001 Nights is a collection of tales. Originating from around the Middle East, they were passed on through generations. They were verbal for a long time and were finally written down in a form that we now call the Thousand and One Nights or Arabian Nights. And Scheherazade's story binds them together. The story is that once upon a time, a sultan of a big and powerful empire left his castle for a hunting trip. When he returned early, he caught his beloved wife in bed with the servants. Enraged, he beheaded them all on the spot. He went off to the estate of his brother, who was away at the time. But there, he heard music and saw his brother's wife among a crowd of figures dancing in the moonlight and indulging in their desires. He returned to court blinded with a desire for revenge. He felt that all women were unfaithful, so he vowed to take revenge by beginning a monstrous tradition. He would take a new wife every night and behead her the following morning so as not to allow her the opportunity to cheat. In the Sultan's madness, the kingdom became a hostile place. Families fled. Sick with worry, the vizier urged his daughters to leave. He had to stay in the capital, but he wanted his daughters, Scheherazade and Dunyazad, to flee. Here the story gets interesting as Scheherazade refuses to leave and insists on becoming the Sultan's next bride. After many attempts to try and make her see sense, and much to the vizier's dismay, Scheherazade and the Sultan were married. On Scheherazade's wedding night, as a last wish, she begged for her sister's company. Dunyazad joined them and requested one last tale from her sister. With the Sultan's approval, Scheherazade started her first story. So captivating and mesmerizing were her charm and her storytelling capabilities, it was almost dawn before anyone realized. Scheherazade ended the night's storytelling on a captivating turn, leaving her audience on edge, wanting more. The Sultan was so engrossed in the story that to everyone's surprise, he allowed her to live one extra night to finish it. 
Of course, the following night, she finished the first story and began another one. She continued this night after night, always ending on a tantalizing twist. Scheherazade continued telling her tales for a thousand and one nights. And in that time, the sultan slowly started to fall for her beauty, charm, and intelligence. He eventually saw the error of his ways and the injustices he'd wrought. Professing his true love for Scheherazade, they began a life together. The bloodlust stopped and peace was restored. So this fits a lot with what I'm talking about, uh, the work of women. The painting is by this uh, woman artist, heavily influenced by neoclassicism and pre-Raphaelitism. So that means this must have been in the late 19th, early 20th century. This artist's work reflected those styles and often included rosy-cheeked children. Due to most of her themes being considered sentimental, because she showed home life, women and children, her work often gets written off as kitsch or just for women. Uh, this this um, writer, Bristi Chowdhury, says that this is a ridiculous notion. Um, most of history has been told, painted and recorded by, and one could argue for men. During Anderson's time, exploring themes that would interest and include female audiences was a pioneering concept. And in the painting, we find Scheherazade in a traditional Victorian portrait posture. Her long, dark hair is separated into two braids, and the jewelry and fabric she is adorned in celebrate traditional Arabic culture and garments. It's interesting how Anderson did not paint her with too much glitter and glamour. Scheherazade comes off as a character from a relatively well-to-do family, but not a queen yet. And we should note the peacock feather. With a metaphorical all-seeing eye, peacocks hold the status of a sacred emblem. The feather represents a pure soul that cannot be tarnished. In the soft light, Scheherazade's facial features are brought out with a kind resonance. There is patience in her eyes, perhaps hinting at her persistence through the thousand and one nights of storytelling to please the sultan. Well, a few years back, I spoke about the work of Joseph Campbell on worldwide mythology. He wrote a famous book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, and had a PBS series. And he talked about how similar stories exist in diverse populations and eras, whether the hero is Hercules, Jesus, Buddha, Luke Skywalker, or Harry Potter. Many elements are the same. The hero usually has a humble beginning receives a call and goes on a journey. Along the way, he encounters helpers and hinderers. He often must complete tasks of strength or skill, culminating in a battle of some kind. Then he returns home with a treasure, which could be literal, gold, or figurative, wisdom. The underlying idea is that these stages of the story correspond to human needs and desires through the ages, such as separating from childhood, and dealing with obstacles in life. Now, after I gave that talk, I came across a book entitled Jane Eyre's Sisters, How Women Live and Write the Heroine Story by a woman named Jody Jenshin Bauer, published in 2015. Bauer stated that the hero's journey as described by Campbell doesn't apply to the stories of women in most times and places. While the boy must leave home in order to become a man, the girl has to leave home in order to avoid becoming a woman in the sense of being restricted and dominated. She gave examples from folk tales and modern literature. So, and of course, neither of these books 
give us the truth about human life, but there are different ways of looking at the stories that speak to us. So I was interested to read of a new book, I believe around 2021, called The Heroine with 1001 Faces by Maria Tatar. Tatar is an expert on fairy tales and folk tales around the world with a special chair at Harvard. She's the editor of the Norton Critical Edition of the Classic Fairy Tales and the Annotated Brothers Grimm and co-editor of the Annotated African American Folk Tales. That is, she knows the world of stories. So I'll share some highlights from her take on women in story around the world. Now Tatar admires the work of Campbell and looks to expand on him. She does start with a story about Campbell. So he wrote this, his famous book while teaching at Sarah Lawrence College, which was a girls' school. And his classes were so popular that he soon was obliged to limit enrollment to seniors. During his last year of teaching there, one of the seniors walked into his office, sat down and said, well, Mr. Campbell, you've been talking about the hero, but what about the women? The startled professor raised his eyebrows and replied, the woman's the mother of the hero. She's the goal of the hero's achieving. She's the protectress of the hero. She is this, she is that. What more do you want? I want to be the hero, she announced. So she goes on to say that Campbell found what he was looking for, that is a male point of view. However, today new visions of the old stories are being written, such as a novel Circe by Madeline Miller from the point of view of the sorceress who turned Odysseus' men into pigs. And the title of Tatar's book comes from the Thousand and One Nights in which in Arabic designates a vast measure. And indeed, Shahrazad uses skills of imagination and curiosity to save her own life. Tatar says, heroines often share a crusading spirit and the goals of their mission often pale by comparison with the shining glory bestowed on heroes. Still, the rebel and her cause are often right there, trying to rescue, restore, or fix things with words as their only weapons, like the paper bag princess who defeated the dragon. Heroes and heroines have deployed different strategies for earning merit. The one, rousingly percussive in most cases, the other, stereotypically veiled and still, yet also quietly creative and deeply inspiring. Today we may be expanding our understanding with new non-binary gender fluid identities. That fact makes it all the more important to understand the culturally scripted performances and inflexible codes enacted in stories from time past. Campbell acknowledged that while the central figures of myth were largely male, they had equivalents in female characters of fairy tales, but he, with most other scholars, dismissed these stories as literal old wives' tales. When we hear the word hero, we think of action, fighting, and war. We rarely think of saints, artists, or helpers, although men have often taken on those roles. Some of the most famous stories are about conflict, the Iliad, the Song of Roland, El Cid, and Beowulf. But let's look at a woman from a classic story, Penelope, wife of Odysseus. While Odysseus makes his way home from Troy past monsters, witches, and the wrath of the gods, Penelope sits at home besieged by suitors 
who assume her husband is dead. She has the desired female virtues of fidelity and domesticity as compared to the beautiful Helen who is adulterous and destructive. Yet Penelope resists in her own way. She tells her suitors she cannot wed until she finishes weaving a shroud for her dead husband. They assumed he was dead. But every night in secret, she rips out the weaving she has done during the day. Thus, she saves herself and her son from the domination of a new husband, because, of course, a husband would have taken over all her property and wealth. The problem we have with Penelope and other heroines is that we know them from stories written and told by men. In 2005, the writer Margaret Atwood wrote an extended poem called The Penelopead, telling the story of Odysseus' wife, and also of the maids, who in the original story are all killed. Tatar links the newness of a woman's voice to the phrase that was coined one year after that book, Me Too. You may not know that that phrase was started by a black woman, Tarana Burke, so long ago that it happened, it was so long ago that it happened on MySpace. Um, but in 2017, it was picked up again during an era of more publicity for women's stories. The request was, if all the women who have been sexually harassed or assaulted wrote Me Too as a status, we might give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. Overnight, more than 30,000 women signed on. Indeed, Maria Tatar has her own story from her student days of being cornered by a faculty member who declared his passion for redheaded Eastern European women. She was able to escape from his office, but never spoke up to anyone because he was on her dissertation committee. And in fact, that professor tried to deny her PhD, fortunately being overruled by the rest of the panel. It was only decades later that Tatar realized how she had silenced herself when she saw how similar her story was to actresses who put up with Harvey Weinstein because they wanted to save their careers, or working class women in factories or restaurants who went along with uncomfortable comments and behavior because they needed the job. Looked at from that angle, the Greek myths read like a rap sheet. I'm rather amazed that I was reading at nine years old stories of Zeus foisting himself on women in the guise of a bird, an animal, a shower of gold. Paintings of these mythological stories all the way into the 19th century were not that different from Playboy centerfolds depicting scantily clad women who are shown enjoying the honor of their assaults. Then there's a the story of Persephone, kidnapped by Hades and held against her will underground and tricked by her captor into consuming a pomegranate seed, which means she can only ascend to the earth for half the year. Silencing women has a long history in stories. To return to Penelope, her son Telemachus banishes her from the great hall saying, take up your own work, the loom and the distaff. Speech will be the business of men all men and me most of all. This reminds me of another Greek, St. Paul, who supposedly said that women should be silent in church and of course submissive to men. There are various stories of women who, women who have their tongues cut out or who are turned into plants or animals so that they cannot speak their truth. Sometimes nature assists the silent woman when birds or winds carry her story to the public. These girls often have a strong bond with the natural world. Think of all those Disney princesses singing with mice, birds, and other adorable creatures. 
In modern day, we now are learning the stories of women silenced by tabloids shutting down the truth, by judges and juries dismissing their complaints, by powerful men such as Weinstein and Bill Cosby using their media clout to disparage their victims. As I mentioned, fairy tales were long dismissed by the male collectors of folklore. They were trivial entertainments for women and children. They also neglected to write down those stories that didn't fit their idea of appropriateness. Little Red Riding Hood ends either with the girl being eaten as a punishment for not following the rules or being rescued by a man, the woodcutter. But there is a version where the girl actually laughs at the wolf's threats and the two end up living together happily and sharing grandma's bed. This is really interesting when you realize that the threat of the wolf and many other beasts in stories is a sexual uh, threat. <clears throat> Maria Tatar points out how many stories criticize curiosity or the thirst for knowledge in women. There's Pandora who opens the box that lets out all the world's ills. There is Eve who desires knowledge for herself and her mate. There's Bluebeard's wife instructed not to open a door who does so and finds evidence of his crimes. Women wanting to know things always leads to a bad end. And Tata rep reproduces several artworks that show both Eve and Pandora as sexualized beings. 19th century literature gave us some heroines who are not afraid to speak up, including Jane Eyre and Joe March from Little Women. A bit later, there's Anne of Green Gables. Now, the boy heroes like Huckleberry Finn or in Treasure Island, Captain's Courageous, the boys go on travels and risk death. But girls like Pollyanna, Heidi, and Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm mostly stay home. But they travel in imagination. Joe writes blood and thunder stories. Anne Shirley has a great imagination. And Francie Nolan of A Tree Grows in Brooklyn grows up to be a writer. Then we have a real-life girl who wrote in her diary. If I don't have the talent to write books or newspaper articles, I can always write for myself. I want to go on living even after my death. So does anybody know who, who wrote that? Yeah, that girl whose name was Anne Frank is known today for expressing herself. A recent book and movie, The Hate You Give, focuses on Star Carter, a black teenager who witnesses the police shooting of a friend and has to decide whether and how to speak up and how to deal with the inevitable repercussions. <clears throat> in the mid-20th century, Betty Friedan famously wrote in her book, The Feminine Mystique, that women felt pressured to get married and have babies because, quote, there is no other way for a woman to be a heroine. Now, <clears throat> around the same time, Helen Gurley Brown published Sex and the Single Girl, which eschewed marriage and children and gave another stereotyped role, the beautiful seductress. Into this moment ripe for cultural change came new examples of women's roles as detectives. Now the women aren't generally detectives at this era in the mold of Sherlock Holmes or police captains or noir antiheroes. They tend to look deceptively weak, either small and pretty or elderly and confused. Miss Marple seems to be just a sweet old lady chatting away or gossiping when she's actually investigating. And we find that in the Dorothy Sayers uh, series with Lord Peter Wimsey, who is my literary crush, by the way, 
Um, he hires elderly women because they can go anywhere and win the trust of people and find out what's going on. And there's a resonance here, the importance of weaving and spinning in women's stories. And knitting also reminds us of Madame Defarge in A Tale of Two Cities, using her knitting to track the guilt of aristocrats. Now, one of the first active detectives was a young one, Nancy Drew. Generations of women now have grown up inspired by Nancy's independence, courage, and intelligence. Conveniently, Nancy has no mother and has an indulgent father who provides her with a roadster. She can not only drive various vehicles, but fix them, as well as carrying heavy loads and thinking logically, even in difficult situations. She does anything a young man could do. Maria Tatar includes in the descendants of Nancy Drew and her devotion to justice, both Hillary Clinton, who has described her love of Nancy, and Hermione in Harry Potter, up for any challenge and taking on social justice issues. But it's not till the mid 20th century that fighting women become a cultural, cultural norm with Wonder Woman joining the comic book craze. And the man who invented Wonder Woman actually was very much ahead of his time and felt that after seeing a couple of world wars, men were not doing a very good job at running the country and the world and felt that women could do a better job. He wanted to promote the idea that the blood-curdling masculinity of the superheroes in DC Comics ought to give way to a heroine who combines the force, strength, and power of Superman or Batman with a woman's capacity for love and generosity. And so Wonder Woman is an agent of peace and justice. Um, and she, uh, after she is found on her island and comes to, uh, to America disguised as a nurse, and secretary. Um, she undoes gender stereotypes in ways that were unimaginable at the time. And in different stories, Wonder Woman fights evil and injustice at all levels by organizing strikes, boycotting products, and leading political rallies. In one story, she ends the excesses of profiteering on the part of a milk trust that has been raising the price of its product and starving American children. She becomes a labor activist who works to double the salaries of underpaid clerks at Bullfinch's department stores. Blistering blazes, Trevor Jones declares at one point, why will that beautiful gal always invite trouble? If she'd only married me, she'd be home cooking by dinner right now. <laughs> so Wonder Woman has descendants today. Some of them seem to me to just be copies of men. They just fight better while always wearing tight, sexy outfits. Um, but there are those who fight for justice in other ways. One of them is the tiny, fierce, possibly autistic Elizabeth Salander from The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. She's physically strong and mentally brilliant, and Tatar says, most often on the wrong side of the law, but on the right side of justice. So this is in the mold of male heroes like Robin Hood as a trickster figure. And although she detests the comparison, she has much in common with her Swedish literary ancestor, Pippi Longstocking, who also broke rules, had physical strength and cleverness to outsmart authority. Um, the Game of Thrones series gave us a whole new range of strong women, warriors, queens, and strategists. The Hunger Games gave us Katniss and apparently launched a craze among kids for archery. So these new heroines re reject the activities and characteristics of the classical heroine. And many of them have an androgynous appearance with, and skills previously reserved for males. 
Even the Disney company has adapted to modern times. In the old princesses, we had Cinderella, Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, and even the little mermaid who gives up her voice for love. They've been replaced by fighters in movies like Mulan and Brave. In Frozen, the prince turns out to be unworthy, just like in the paper bag princess, and the true love is between two sisters. Apparently in the sequel, Frozen 2, the young women fight against environmental destruction. Moana goes on a journey to save her people in the Joseph Campbell way, unmasking the supposed hero. And in more recent movies, Mirabelle in Encanto is disturbed that she seems to have no superpowers, but it turns out her power is keeping the family together. And I wrote this before the Barbie movie, but for sure there's a lot to discuss there about Barbie's journey as a hero. So where are we now? There are many stories now of intelligent and strong women. The past is being re-examined. For instance, one study suggests that many of the handprints in early cave paintings are of women. And there was just something in the news about a burial where everyone assumed this was a warrior man because there were weapons, and now they can tell from DNA or other testing that it was a woman. Women are now getting more college degrees, and until the pandemic, we're weathering changes in employment trends better than men. Right-wing speakers bemoan the loss of masculinity in America and elsewhere. And even those on the progressive end aren't quite sure what the role and values should be for men who reject the stereotypes of the past. One would hope that the gains made by one gender shouldn't reflect losses by the other, but new ways of being a hero can emerge for anyone along the wide spectrum of gender identity. Maria Tatar concludes, the women writers who dare to speak and shape new ways of thinking about our world also created new tools, less for dismantling what we have than for building rich new alternatives. They also displayed a shared solidarity in their passion for defining our aspirations, offering up a thousand and one possible ways to be a heroine. They have made it possible to reimagine the future, and they help us understand how care, empathy, compassion, and new forms of justice, driven by communal grassroots efforts rather than institutional, are leading us to turn our backs on the heroic ideals we once embraced. This is a large topic, but I uh, would be happy to have any comments uh, or questions. Yes, Barbie certainly has a hero uh, myth to it. She receives a call and goes on a quest, but it seems to me that method, her method of winning her her battle against Ken um, is something like the paper bag princess. She does not fight him physically uh, or get weapons, but uses her brain and also the power of organization. Today, the Washington Post article about a four-year-old who wanted her birthday party to have the theme of female Supreme Court justices. She read, she had a book read to her about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And she practically memorized the book and then wanted to learn about this. Her mother figured she would change back to Disney or some other theme. No, and so they, it, it describes in there how 
Uh, she had a robe and a, a gavel, and uh, they, they had uh, got cutouts of these female Supreme Court justices and wrote on there, happy birthday, justice, whatever her name was. And uh, so that's very impressive that just something about role models. 